In the last few days, downloads of my podcast across all platforms has absolutely exploded. Normally, that would be good news. Unfortunately, the reason for the sudden interest in Palestine relates to the news coming out of Jerusalem. That is the displacement and ethnic cleansing of the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood and the subsequent events in and around Masjid al-Aqsa. I'm happy that people are waking up and looking to find answers. But if you're looking for quick answers or rapid-fire talking points to go hurl at your racist frenemies on social media, this might not be the place for you. I told my listeners in the first episode, preoccupation is a journey. This is a journey of Palestine's people. It's a journey of their origin, their rulers, both the good and the bad, their victories, their defeats, their culture, their politics. But there are two things that you need to understand. Firstly, on this journey, I plan on taking my time. And secondly, I refuse to make this a podcast exclusively about the Zionist project and its ethnic cleansing of Palestine. Look, that will come up, believe me. And once we start talking about it, we won't be able to stop. But Zionism is not Palestine's story. It's but a mere chapter in the long history of a fascinating place. As for this episode that you're about to hear, you're about to get a front row seat to Palestine's first taste of European colonialism. And you're going to see what was happening in the different parts of Palestine in and around that time. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast, to follow me on Instagram at PreoccupationPod, and as always, enjoy. Jerusalem has long been the focal point of the still unsolved problem of Palestine. There is no Palestine, no Palestinians, there never was, there never will be. Palestine, I'm a Palestine. Have you ever held a negative stereotype about a group or a people only to then interact with a person from that group and discover that your ideas of them, of that whole group, are totally unfounded? That fact alone, the fact that engaging and experiencing the other, the fact that that can wildly change our perceptions is what makes those exchanges so important. Experiencing the other is so important because it allows us to humanize even those that we disagree with. And and when I say experiencing or engaging with the other, 
I don't necessarily mean developing friendships. Even those mundane grocery store transactions or spotting someone on a bench press at the gym, even that experience helps defeat the ghouls and goblins that inevitably come to inhabit our echo chambers when those engagements are not possible. In the absence of sustained cross-cultural engagement, a single negative incident can transform a person's understanding of an entire people. And this image, this image from the single experience can pass on from generation to generation. Well, up until the 18th century, Palestine's last major large-scale cross-cultural exchange with European powers had been the Crusades. And those were so traumatizing that we're still talking about them today. Something worth sharing at this point is that in the Palestinian lexicon, in fact, the lexicon of all the Arabs, the collective memory of the Crusaders themselves has not immortalized them as Crusaders, but rather the Franks. And so one can just imagine that the coastal Palestinians witnessing the arrival of Napoleon's army in March of 1799 felt that this was merely the realization of something they knew would eventually happen. Sooner or later, they believed the Crusaders were going to return. And they had half a millennium worth of ghost stories telling them what to expect when the Franks returned. Well, as history would have it, Napoleon exceeded all of their expectations. Napoleon Bonaparte's arrival at the shores of Jaffa in March of 1799 marks the beginning of Palestine's direct experience with colonialism. And despite the fact that this initial invasion eventually proves to be a failure, the brutality of it impacted attitudes toward France in particular and European powers in general for centuries. By 1799, the global balance of wealth and power had firmly tipped in favor of Christian Europe at the expense of the Muslim world in general, and, and I suppose at the expense of the Ottoman Empire in particular. In the lead-up to this confrontation, Sultan Selim III had spent several years flirting with the idea of recognizing the revolutionary government of France. Now, keep in mind that unlike the Palestinians, the high port in Istanbul had regular dealings with the French. The legacy of the Crusades did not hover over the head of Sultan Selim the way that it did over that of thousands of Palestinians. And in any case, the primary driver for his inclination toward recognizing revolutionary France appears to be his appreciation for the discord that this revolution seems to have brought to the balance of power in Europe. During that closing decade of the 18th century, the revolutionary fervor of the French Republic was obviously viewed with intense suspicion and distrust uh, in the absolute monarchies of Europe. And this played very well for the Ottoman Empire, who had just recently suffered a slew of defeats against their arch-rival, Russia. So the thinking went, anything that entangled Europe would limit the attention directed to a now-struggling Ottoman Empire. In the early 1790s, 
Istanbul even went so far as to have some French military advisors helping to modernize their underperforming military. Well, by 1798, Ottoman French relations had soured as revolutionary France got settled into Europe and the French began to look to conquer Egypt as a means of getting a stranglehold over British India's shipping routes. Now, despite the fact that the Ottomans were falling behind the European kingdoms militarily, they were by no means despondent or defeated as an empire. They were not going to take this invasion lying down. Now, I think it is important and valuable to understand the attitude and perspective of the time. And by that, I mean the attitude and perspective of the Ottomans at the time. Because unlike you and I, the people living at that time did not have the benefit of hindsight on their side. They did not enter this engagement thinking that this was just the first in a series of events that would lead to their eventual subjugation and colonization. At the turn of the 19th century, I think the Ottomans saw this as a major engagement with one of their traditional adversaries at a time where the scales were simply just not tipped in their favor. They did not see this as a David versus Goliath type of battle for sovereignty and survival. Not yet. And we will see in a moment that the Ottomans were, were actually right to feel like their days are far from over. Napoleon arrives, and his arrival is chronicled by a French diplomat traveling with the Imperial Army. Just as a note here, every French name will be butchered for the entirety of this podcast, not just this episode, but forever. So, Louis de Borin writes in his Memoirs of Napoleon, quote, On the 4th of March, we commenced the siege of Jaffa, the paltry place which, to round a sentence, was pompously styled the ancient Joppa. Uh, that's the Hellenistic derivative of the name Jaffa. Held out only to the 6th of March, when it was taken by storm, and given to pillage. The massacre was horrible. End quote. Take a moment to understand. If a companion of Napoleon Bonaparte is describing the incident as A, a massacre, and B, a horrible one at that, this tells us, even centuries later, this tells us that the scene must have been horrific. At this stage of the campaign, Napoleon's army captures 4,000 men with no plan as to how they will be fed or cared for. De Borien chronicles the internal debate among the French as to what should be done with these men. One of the most interesting parts of this exchange arises when Napoleon's army considers letting the 4,000 men go. De Borien writes, quote, Should the prisoners be set at liberty? They would then instantly reinforce the Pasha, or else, throwing themselves into the mountains of Nablus, would greatly annoy our rear and right flank, and deal out death to us, as a recompense for the life we had given them. There could be no doubt of this. End quote. Now this last part that I'm about to show you, I find this particularly fascinating. He closes off that thought by saying, quote, What is a Christian dog to a Turk? It would even have been a religious and meritorious act in the eye of the prophet. End quote. And that right there, that really does capture the essence of what the French believed they were up against. Despite the fact that Muslims and Christians lived rather harmonious lives within the borders of the Ottoman Empire, 
The Turks, as, as he calls them, are in the eyes of the French a fundamentally anti-Christian heathen people. And so on March 10th, just four days after Napoleon's initial arrival, the order is given to execute the prisoners. At the shores of Jaffa, 4,000 men are shot and bayoneted to death in a systematic mass killing that, again, represented the first major cultural exchange between the people of Palestine and the West in something like four or five hundred years. Deborian describes the scene, quote, The atrocious scene, when I think of it, still makes me shudder, as it did on the day I beheld it, and I would wish it were possible for me to forget it rather than be compelled to describe it. All the horrors imagination can conceive relative to that day of blood would fall short of the reality. End quote. Now, without dwelling on the gory details here, just take a moment to consider what Deborian witnessed. Bayonetting 4,000 helpless men is by no means a quick task. It takes time. And so for hours, one helpless man after another fruitlessly begged for their lives, right up until the jab of the bayonet silenced their pleas. Residents of Jaffa must have heard the moans and cries of these men for hours. Think about what that does to the collective memory of a people. And once the slaughter of Jaffa is complete, Napoleon's army proceeds to Akka, to Acre, and lays siege to the city. The siege itself is well known in Western historiography, as are nearly all of Napoleon's exploits. What usually takes center stage, though, in this story is the fact that Britain and Russia, seeing their traditional enemy France make inroads in the cotton-rich Mediterranean, participated in the fight, limiting French expansion. The Ottoman side of the story, by contrast, is usually just part of the background. And within the Ottoman story, the Palestinian story in particular, has truly been relegated to the forgotten pages of history. And this is where I want to focus. So, last episode, I spent an enormous amount of time speaking about Dahir al-Umar, the indigenous Palestinian from the Safad Sanjat, who went on to become what I called the founding father of modern Palestine. Well, the fact that Dahir al-Umar was indigenous to Palestine is really, perhaps, the most unique thing about his reign. Otherwise, the reign of Dahir al-Umar was characteristic of something that was happening in the Ottoman Empire at that time. I discussed in previous episodes the Ottoman Empire's generally distant relationship to its subject populations. But the rise of Dahir al-Umar generally corresponded with a decline in the Ottoman central government's ability to exert its influence over the provinces. So in the time of Dahir al-Umar, it was not an unwillingness of the Ottoman Empire to immerse itself in the internal affairs of its provinces. It was an inability. The 18th century Ottoman solution to this problem was the appointment of strongmen to positions of official authority to rule in the name of the empire. In reality, these strongmen were essentially autonomous rulers, and often these strongmen came into power through internal power struggles that the Ottoman Empire then really only acknowledged after the fact. Such was the case with Dahir al-Umar. You can think of the Ottoman Empire at this time less like a modern state 
and more like a constellation of power centers, with each one of those centers essentially deriving its legitimacy from the Sultan. So this was a two-way exchange, in which one of these strongmen would then come into power through an internal power struggle, and only really achieve power once that power is bestowed upon them by the Sultan. What made Dahr al-Umar unique was not his power, but his indigeneity. There were other strongmen at the time, but the Ottomans generally preferred that the rulers were from outside of the region they were ruling. That way, it was less likely that they would grow too powerful. And so with the fall of Dahr al-Umar, the Ottoman Empire could return to its preferred mode of operation by appointing a foreign ruler over the region. Ahmed Jazar Pasha was born in Bosnia and traveled to Egypt as a young man under mysterious circumstances. I mean, some accounts claim that he was in search of just greener pastures. Others claim that he was fleeing a blood feud of sorts. And in any case, he began his career in Egypt as a barber, managed to ingratiate himself with the neo-Mamluks that had risen to power in Egypt at that time. After his Mamluk patron's murder at the hands of a Bedouin tribe, Ahmed Jazar Pasha's reprisal was so swift and bloody that it earned him the epithet Jazar, which means the butcher. Shortly after avenging the death of his patron, an internal feud among the neo-Mamluks placed Jazar in a precarious situation, and he left Egypt under the cover of darkness and settled in Sleda, in Sidon, in modern-day southern Lebanon. With nothing but the clothes on his back, Jazar managed to earn the respect and protection of a local Druze leader. The, the Druze are a religious sect who inhabit the mountain regions between modern-day Lebanon, Syria, and, and Palestine. His participation in the wars of Dahar al-Umar, both for and against Dahar al-Umar, earned him further notoriety. By the 1780s, Jazar had succeeded Dahar al-Umar and became the most powerful man in greater Syria. Under the rule of Dahar al-Umar, the Galilee region of Palestine, so that is northern Palestine, and the city of Acre in particular, were totally transformed. I mean, at the start of Dahar al-Umar's rule, Akka, Acre, was in ruins, I mean, with a population of only a few hundred people. By the end of Dahar al-Umar's rule, Akka was the third largest city in Asham, in the Levant, with a population of 25,000. This transformed Akka into a city of immigrants who, well, I mean, while that is interesting and it presents us with something that Palestine had probably never seen at that time. These immigrants lack the traditional social structure of other Palestinian towns, and they demonstrated total loyalty to Dahar al-Umar. When faced with external threats, Dahar al-Umar armed every single inhabitant, both Christian and Muslim, in defense of the town. Dahar al-Umar also erected formidable walls to protect the town in case of a large-scale attack. Well, a Napoleonic siege was about as large-scale as anyone could have imagined. Now it was up to Jazar, the successor of Dahar al-Umar, to defend the region's single most important port. Napoleon had laid waste to Egypt before he arrived in Yaffa, so Jazar Pasha had months to prepare for the inevitable arrival of the French war machine. 
In the 19th century, the highly decentralized Ottoman army was undergoing a serious overhaul of its military, an overhaul designed to modernize the Ottoman military and enable it to face its European foes once again, and face them with some strength. But that process was ongoing. This was Sultan, Sultan Salim's, uh, what they call Nidham al-Jadid, the, the New Order reforms. Jezar needed to recruit fighters now, and he needed to recruit them from the indigenous population. And so he called upon the tribes of Palestine to come forth and defend this land from domination, and perhaps with the exception of his own base in the north, the most powerful fighting force in Palestine, were the tribes of Nablus. Now, like Dahar al-Umar before him, Jazar's rule was plagued with constant struggles with Nablus. I mean, despite controlling everything, literally everything around Nablus, Jazar's forces could never take control of Mount Nablus itself, and that is despite numerous attempts over the course of his 30-year reign. When it came time to defend Acre, then, Jazar had a difficult time recruiting Nablus into the fight. Jazar Pasha's representatives sent a firman, a, 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 that is a royal decree, to all the administrative districts of Palestine, informing the indigenous inhabitants of the dire need for fighters. The consequence of not sending fighters would have been a hefty fine, and Nablus was originally asked for 5,000 fighters to come and support the jihad against the French. And true to form, absolutely true to form, the merchants of Nablus immediately begin negotiating. As Bishara describes it, quote, The leaders of Jebel Nablus, that is the mountains of Nablus, treated the Furmans as opening bids in a lengthy negotiation. Instead of dispatching fighters, they sent consecutive petitions requesting that Jebel Nablus's share, including that of the Jinin district, be reduced, first to 4,000, then 3,000, then 2,000, and finally 1,000. Almost two years later, the matter had still not been settled. End quote. Now, you can read this and think that the tribes of Nablus are afraid to fight, or are afraid to fight the French, and are shirking away from their duty to defend their land against a foreign invasion. But I don't think that's what's happening here. So first off, in 1799, the world has not yet seen the Napoleonic war machine that they would see in decades to come. Napoleon is still a general at this point. He's not the emperor of France. And that's relevant because we already saw earlier that the Ottoman Empire itself and the inhabitants of Palestine are not struck by the shock and awe of the invading French army. I think they very much see themselves as equals of the French and certainly as people of superior moral character. They are not prey for colonization. They are rivals who have fallen behind a step or two. As for the tribes and families of Nablus specifically, these guys are as hard as nails. You're talking about men who were experienced and battle-hardened from years of fighting each other, from fighting Dahar al-Umar, and occasionally even fighting the Ottoman Empire. They will fight, and they know that, because their reputation as people of noble character would have demanded that. I mean, the idea... The idea that some of the most notable families in all of Palestine would, after being asked to fight, absolve themselves of their Islamic, though 
not yet national duty to defend their land is it's it's unthinkable especially when one considers that in this case the enemy are the descendants of the crusaders and that palestine's other administrative districts had already sent their fighters what i see here is a people who know their worth the families of nablus understand their experience and fighting potential and are looking to get the best deal possible. They're negotiators. What can I say? Equally as important is the fact that Nablus is, as I mentioned in the episode on Nablus, a town of major economic importance. And in the pre-industrial age, production requires people. And depleting your town of 5,000 able-bodied men means emptying it of its labor force. That means fewer olives are being harvested. Less soap is being produced. Fewer garments are being sewn. I mean, you get the idea. And there's a last point here, and this is perhaps the most important. The invasion of Napoleon coincided with a massive conflict within Nablus, with the town divided between the Tuqans, the most powerful merchant family led by their patriarch, Khalil Tuqan, who also happened to be the most senior Ottoman official in the town, and, on the opposing side, the Jarrars, the most powerful peasant family in Nablus, Nablus, led by Sheikh Yusuf al-Jarrar. With all of that said, eventually, the Ottoman Empire did run out of patience. Going back to Bashar al-Dumani, he writes, quote, In mid-November 1800, keep in mind, the original royal decree was sent out 24 months earlier while Napoleon was still in Egypt. So he says, quote, a firman was, was sent to the leaders of Jebel Nablus, reminding them of the atrocities of the infidel French and, more to the point, setting a clear deadline for their contribution. And here he, he quotes the, the correspondence directly from the Ottoman representatives to the tribes of Nablus. Quote, Previously, we sent a firman asking you for 2,000 men from the district of Nablus and Jenin to join our victorious soldiers in a holy war. Then you signed a petition excusing yourselves, saying that it was impossible to send 2,000 men due to the need for planting and plowing. You beg that we forgive you 1,000 men, and in our mercy we forgave you 1,000 men. But until now, not one of the remaining 1,000 has come forward. Since the armies had to depart quickly to Egypt, we will accept instead the sum of 110,000 piastres. As soon as this order is received, you have until Shawal the 8th, that corresponded with February 22nd, 1801, to deliver the sum of 40,000 piastres, and to mid-Shawal for paying the rest. If you show any hesitation, you will be severely punished. End quote. You will be severely punished. And even with those threats from the Ottoman government, Nablus never actually paid. Eventually, though, push came to shove, and the tribes of Nablus had to make a decision. In this case, it was Sheikh Yusuf al-Jarrar. He was the one who took the initiative. He wrote a poem to rally the sons of Nablus. And the poem read, quote, House of Tuqan, draw your swords and mount your precious saddles. House of Nimr, you mighty tigers. Uh, Nimr is uh, Arabic for tiger. So house of Nimr, you mighty tigers, straighten your courageous lines. Muhammad Uthman, mobilize your men, mobilize the heroes from all directions. Ahmed al-Qasim, you bold lion, prow of the advancing lines. And the poem goes on. And one by one, 
he called on the notable families to rally this cause, and he lists them according to their rank in the town. We could probably spend just another two hours just speaking about the poem of Sheikh Yusuf, but I will try to be concise here. Through this poem, Sheikh Yusuf al-Jarrar hit several birds with one stone. First, it managed to rally the forces of Nablus in a way that obligated everyone to play a part. And he did so while honoring his arch-rivals, the Tuqans, by listing them first. Lastly, and this is perhaps the most important, most subtle and clever point of all, being the architect of the Nabulsi war effort and being the author of the poem, he placed his Jarrar clan as first among equals. So with their entry into the war, the tribes of Nablus play a decisive role in halting Napoleon's advance into Palestine. And so the Arab core of the Ottoman Empire is wounded, but remains intact. But at this stage, it is clear, I mean, at least with hindsight, it's clear, that Napoleon's invasion, Napoleon's invasion left drops of Ottoman blood in the Mediterranean, and the sharks of Europe, ever alert to the presence of wounded prey, were beginning to circle. Notably absent from the war effort were the notables of Al-Quds, of Jerusalem. Though Jazar Pasha had called up notable families of places like Al-Khalil and Nablus, the Husseinis and their, ve- their fellow Jerusalemites somehow managed to evade being recruited into the war effort. Now, this could be due to the important positions that they occupied in the city, thus absolving them of the war effort, or it could just come down to cold, hard bribery. We don't know. Whatever the case, the entire Napoleonic episode had very little impact on the family, which was convenient for them since the late 18th and early 19th century was a busy time for the Husseinis. While Jazad was busy worrying about Napoleon's army, the Husseinis had to worry about a much greater threat within the Ottoman Empire, at least a greater threat to them. And that threat came from the Sultan himself. Sultan Salim III is famous for his Nizam al-Jadid reforms. And while the reforms specifically refer to an attempt to modernize the military, they were much more broad than that. Now, perhaps he was inspired by elements of the French Revolution, but Sultan Salim sought to modernize and secularize the Ottoman Empire. Now, secularization in the 19th century Ottoman Empire meant something very different from what it means today. But broadly speaking, Sultan Selim III sought to reduce the power and influence of the ulama, of the Islamic scholars, who had grown to form a formidable power base of their own all throughout the Ottoman Empire. This put families like the Husseinis right in the crosshairs of the Sultan. Now, fortunately for the Husseinis, Sultan Salim III died in the first decade of the 19th century, and many of his reforms were overturned by his successors. But the threat put to the Husseinis and the notable families in Jerusalem in general, well, it put them on notice, let them know that change was in the air. But for now, one Husseini in particular was enjoying the peak of the family's power. 
So if you recall from my episode on Jerusalem, the power of the city rested in three offices. The office of the Mufti, sort of regional chief Sharia court judge. The office of Imam al-Haram, that is the person who leads the prayers at Al-Aqsa Mosque. And Naqib al-Ashraf, the leader of the notable households of prophetic lineage. Well, within the 17th century, all three of these offices were in the hands of the Husseinis. But by the late 18th century, all three of these offices were in the hands of one man, Hassan al-Husseini. Now, Hassan was an Islamic scholar of regional renown, and there is no doubt of this. He both taught and learned from leading scholars of the time, and the records of Al-Azhar in Egypt indicate as much. But he was also shrewd and navigated the tricky waters of Jerusalem's political scene very carefully. He needed to be shrewd, since his personal rise to prominence, which cemented the Husseini's place in Palestinian society for nearly a century after his death, this rise to prominence was mirrored by the meteoric rise of other families as well, such as the Khalidis. And like the Husseinis, the Khalidis, who I have now I mentioned them before, they were a prominent scholarly family who occupied numerous high-profile positions throughout Palestine, and they rivaled the Husseinis for power. Well, in the late 18th century, right as Hassan al-Husseini was in the peak of his powers, Musa al-Khalidi rose to become the chief qadi of Anatolia. Now, this is a position in the Ottoman Empire that was the second highest religious office of the entire empire second only to Sheikh al-Islam. This was higher than any Jerusalem-based scholar had ever risen, and Musa al-Khalidi's personal influence now extended far beyond the limited sphere of Jerusalem. He could influence decisions in Damascus, in Cairo, in Istanbul, and meanwhile, another Jerusalem family, the family of Abu al-Saud, not related to the other al-Saud that you're (laughs) probably thinking, Totally other, a totally different family. The Abu al-Saud family rose to great prominence and their patriarch became a personal guest and friend of the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. Still, with all of that, with all of those rivals increasing in prominence, Hassan's political maneuvering and the legacy that he left behind ensured that the Husseinis not only survived, but thrived And one way that the Husseinis managed to maintain their prominence in Jerusalem, and more broadly in Palestine, was through politically strategic marriages. Thanks to Hassan's prominence, by the time of his death, everyone wanted to be married to the Husseinis. Well, in 1813, Palestine saw what must have felt like a royal wedding. Hassan's sort of successor in the Husseini family was his nephew, Umar al-Husseini. And in 1813, Umar al-Husseini's daughter married Musa Tuqan, the governor of Nablus, from the Tuqan family. And Musa Tuqan's daughter married Umar al-Husseini's son. And through this double wedding, two of the most powerful families in Palestine could unite their forces to navigate through the Ottoman Empire's political minefields 
The Turqans were able to leverage the nobility and reputation of the Husseinis as they expanded their merchant empire. The Husseinis could use the Turqans' relationship with the governor of Damascus to entrench their position and limit the extent to which they would be taxed by the governor of Damascus. All of these cases that I've mentioned, everything, the Husseinis, the Turqans, the Khalidis, Abu Lus'uds, all of them, all of them show that despite Palestine's small size, the notable families of the early 19th century of Palestine punched way above their weight class, and their prominence in the Ottoman Empire was only growing. What they could not have known at the time was that their prominence was growing just as the Ottoman Empire was receding. Napoleon's invasion of Palestine and his sudden abandonment of the whole campaign created a series of unintended consequences, which, as I kind of already said, is something of a hallmark in the history of Palestine. Things just tend to work out in ways that nobody expected. And I want to wrap up this episode with a discussion of some of the, the impacts that Napoleon's invasion had on Palestine and its inhabitants. And though I feel the need to add that I mean, it's important not to get carried away with the significance of this event. Many 20th century historians, I mean, honestly, in a rather clumsy way, attribute Napoleon's invasion of Palestine as the beginning of modernity in the country, in, in Palestine. But this is a very difficult position to hold, considering that, for starters, his stay in Palestine was too brief to be considered culturally meaningful. There seems to be no evidence that the Napoleonic Code, European military doctrine, the French cultural traditions crept into Palestine as a result of Napoleon's invasion. The idea that has been kicked around for a while was that Palestinian modernity, quote-unquote modernity, was the consequence of the Middle East's interactions with enlightened Europe. Now, rather than dismiss this claim on the grounds that it reeks of white saviorism and Eurocentricism, it may be more helpful to actually look at the evidence and see whether this holds any credibility. So first of all, what is modernity? I mean, I think I've discussed it in previous episodes, and even if I haven't, I don't want to get too stuck in the weeds here, because this will come up in later episodes. In any case, we tend to think of modernity as a term that is synonymous with progress, with things getting better. And so when we tack it on as an adjective, it gives the impression that the thing we are describing has improved through the process of modernization. Think modern economics, modern thought, modern technology, modern furniture. Generally speaking, though, when historians refer to the modernization of Palestine, I find that they are more often than not substituting it for the word westernization. That is, the point where Palestine and Palestinians begin to more closely resemble their European counterparts. When it comes to this particular saga in the history of Palestine, the suggestion has been that Napoleon's invasion triggered a series of events that resulted in Palestine's economic maturity throughout the 19th century. So to put that in simpler words, some historians claim that it is the arrival of Napoleon 
that then embeds Palestine's economy into the global economy. But this claim sort of falls flat on its face when it's presented with the hard data of the time. As we saw in, previous, in the previous episode, Palestine's economy had already undergone massive change throughout the 18th century under the rule of Dahar al-Umar. One primary consequence of Dahar al-Umar's rule was the transformation of Palestine from a country, from a country primarily made up of subsistence farmers to a country firmly plugged into the international trade and commerce of the time. As Nur Masalha writes, quote, The conventional wisdom about modernity in the Arab world focuses on the elite notable politics, the Napoleonic invasion, or the Ottoman state's weaknesses as a mix of factors behind the start of modernization in the region. Yet the new evidence contradicts elitist, romantic orientalist, or biblicist approaches to modern Palestinian history. This evidence shows that, first, the start of modernities was in the 18th century Palestine, that is, before Napoleon's invasion. Second, that the Napoleonic invasion of Palestine and siege of Acre in 1799 followed rather than led the European material culture, and commodities which became widely available in much of urban and rural Palestine throughout the rules of Al-Umar and Jazzar, end quote. And so then, what was the impact of Napoleon's invasion? Well, with the destruction of Palestine's coast, emerged a new Yaffa. I think many of the listeners have wondered when Yaffa would become relevant to the story. And for those of you who are not familiar, Yaffa was the cultural and economic heart of early 20th century Palestine and held that position right up until 1948 with the subsequent ethnic cleansing of Palestine of its Arab inhabitants. Well, Yaffa's origin story as that city emerges right here in the wake of Napoleon's invasion. I mentioned earlier that Jazar Pasha succeeded Dahar al-Umar as the ruler of Palestine. And like Dahar al-Umar, Jazar maintained Acre as his base of power, making it, at that time, the most powerful city in Palestine. Well, he had a client, that is Jazar, had a client named Muhammad Abu Nabut who was the district governor of Yaffa. And Abu Nabut had a vision to lift Yaffa out from the ashes of Napoleon's invasion and transform it into something grand, something spectacular. Not another Jerusalem overflowing with notables or another Nablus dominated by clans and, and peasant fiefdoms. I mean, he was inspired by something different altogether. Now, his immediate goal, it appears, was to build a port city to serve Jerusalem and its holy sites. His longer vision, Salim Tamari writes, was possibly to rival Hakka and to rival Jazar Pasha. Salim Tamari describes his project as follows, quote, After completing the fortifications of the city, he started an ambitious program of construction that established the major thoroughfares of the city as well as two markets, two khans, port storehouses, and several light industries. He used his position as administrator of religious endowments to consolidate public properties under waqf administration, 
building the great mosque and several sabils. A sabil is a water fountain. The establishment of public security, along with the commercial invigoration of Yaffa, under the rule of Abu Nabut, began to attract merchants and merchants and artisans who bestowed on it the name of Umm al-Gharib, the, the city of strangers, marking its hospitality to newcomers. The completion of the city's monumental buildings marked Abu Nabut as the ruler of southern Palestine. End quote. Abu Nabut's vision for Yaffa lays the groundwork for the city that has captured the imagination of anyone interested in pre-Zionist Palestine. And his plan to rival his patron, Al-Jazzar, also saw some success. Abu Nabut's rivalry with Al-Jazzar will be a major part of the next episode, so I won't dwell on that at the moment. But what I do want to close off on is the fact that, to me, Napoleon's biggest cultural accomplishment in Palestine came not from anything he built, but from what he destroyed. While those changes came from within Palestine, there were also changes that came from outside of Palestine that came to the Holy Land as a consequence of Napoleon's invasion. But that will have to wait until the next episode of Preoccupation. <laughs>